email, phone call, or a letter, congratulate us, a child is born. That was the announcement the angels made to the shepherds, and it was predicted here in Isaiah chapter 9. But first, we're going to do an overview of chapter 8, and then concentrate on that great announcement in chapter 9, which coincides with the beginning of Christmas season. A couple of weeks ago, actually last week, we looked at the announcement of the birth of a special baby born of a virgin. So we hear more about that baby tonight. Okay, chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. The birth of another child, Isaiah and his wife, who is a prophetess, and they have a little son with a remarkable name, Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Have these girls learned that name yet? Yes, kind of rolls off your tongue. Maher Shalal Hashbaz, longest name in the Bible. And it says here that uh, during that, his childhood, Assyria would conquer and enslave northern Israel, but not southern Israel. Later, by the way, I keep repeating this, good to know Bible history. Um, the Babylonians would conquer Assyria in that they would conquer southern Israel. But meanwhile, God said, I'm going to let Assyria conquer the north because they're, they're worse but I'll protect southern Israel temporarily. And they uh, also, Assyria would conquer Syria and Lebanon, who were threatening to invade Israel. Doesn't this sound like what's going in the Middle East? This keeps going over and over again. Different nations side to go against Israel. And sometimes one nation sides with Israel, another one, they, they're their enemies. So that's verses 1 to 4. Then 5 to 10. You'll notice that it's printed in your Bible as sort of a poem or a song. This is what we'd call a lament or a lamentation. Uh, there's a book in the Bible called Lamentations, which is a dirge. It's a sad song. And that book is about what happened after the Babylonians conquered Israel and Judah. And now the people are living in ruins. Well, this is a lament for what's going to happen. It's what you call a dirge, kind of like the blues. Uh, have you ever heard uh, Jewish songs often sung in a minor key, bewailing their history and they're persecuted and driven out of countries? And then when they celebrate, like celebrating the release of the houses, they're dancing and it's kind of upbeat, but the Jews have a certain way of singing. So this was a song that would be sung in advance of the conquering of northern Israel. By the way, certain psalms are lament psalms written by Jews when they were in exile. Part of this is comparing uh, Assyria to a river that's overflowing its banks. Now, you'd have to know not only history, but a little geography. Um, Assyria <clears throat> was where these two parallel rivers were. They started down at the uh, Gulf of Aqaba, and then they separated and they joined again, and in the middle you had Mesopotamia. The northern part was Assyria, the southern part was Babylonia, but the two rivers were the Tigris and the Euphrates. And so they were always thinking, well, the river, and it's mentioned in the Old Testament. So God uses that to say, uh, like in verse 7, the waters of the river, strong and mighty, and they're going to go up over its channels. 
So it's a picture of Assyria wanting to expand its territory with military aggression, conquering the Babylonians, going after Syria, all them aggressive warfare. That's usually the cause of many wars. Uh, for example, if you know your 20th century history, that was the main excuse Hitler had to start a war in Hirohito over in Japan. Hirohito said, we are the chosen people because of the Shinto religion. It's our destiny to expand because we're a small island. And so they went after China and they went after Burma and all these other countries. They wanted more land. What about Hitler? Well, he wanted to go after the Jews, but he kept saying, and he was even in his book in 1924, Mein Kampf, he said, the German people are the special people we need Lebensraum, room to live. And he said, we will get it to the east. It was right there, almost 20 years before the war. We're going to go after Russia. After all, the British conquered India for land and to colonize it. Why can't we? And they said, he said the French and the Portuguese had conquered South America and most of Africa. In other words, it was a land grab. And after... The Nazis were overthrown. What happened then? The communists wanted to take over and they took over Eastern Europe and tried other countries like North Korea wanted to conquer South Korea, the Nazis, the Nazis, the communists, and then North Vietnamese communists wanted the South Vietnamese and that was that war. And then uh, what about back in China? Once they were freed from the Japanese, they started becoming imperialistic, aggressive uh, war. They mousy tongue, and they said, well, let's try to conquer all the eastern countries. Aggressive warfare is always wrong. Now, it's been said, like some of the Palestinians, that's the history of Israel. They stole the land from the Canaanites. It's right there in the Bible. They forget one thing. The Lord God Almighty gave Israel a unique land grant. Now, some dispute whether that's still in effect today, but it's right there in the Bible to Abraham and his descendants would have that land. Besides, the Canaanites were very, very wicked people. They deserved to be driven out. But it was a unique land grant. God has not given a land grant to anybody else. Now, let's bring that up to date. Very current with the war over there. If you were to ask the Palestinians and the Israelis, what are they fighting over? They'd say, the land. The Jews would say, Ha'eretz, the land, it's special. We've been wandering for centuries until we get back to our land that was given to us by Abraham. Curiously, the atheistic and agnostic Jews will even say, it's, we need a homeland and then we can protect it. What do the Palestinians say? They say, you stole it from us. And then people that know their history would say, well, they've, they've been... Palestinians who were Arabs and Jews living there, even though the Romans drove the Israelites out in uh, 70 AD and then again in 135 AD, there have always been some Arabs and some Jews there. And so you'd say, well, let's look at the history. Um, Israel was granted the land in 1948. Then you go back to 1917 at the end of World War I, uh, that area was called Palestine, and it had been a colony of the Ottoman Empire, which was Muslim. But they sided with Germany, so when the Allies won World War I, they said, we're going to cut up the... And they created a little nation called Iraq. 
Iraq had never existed before. It was part of Persia, but now it was a separate nation. And so they said, well, what do we do with Palestine? And General Gordon and the Prime Minister of England said, well, let's give that, let the Jews move in. And then they became a state in 1948. But the Palestinians said, we were here first, it's our land, because yes, it was part of the Ottoman Empire, but those were Muslims and we're Muslims, this is our holy land. How much of this did, did y'all know? That's what they're fighting over the land, but it's become more than the land, it's a feud. Where uh, they say, we're fighting you not just over the land, but because in the last intifada, you killed my uncle or my parents, and so I'm going to get back to you. And a feud is like a poker game, and neither one wants to fold. They're just up the ante and fighting, fighting. For example, I don't want to sound like a prophet, but if Hamas is defeated, that's not going to end the war. It's just going to give the Palestinians time to reload because they're going to say, you killed thousands of our people because you were the aggressors, you stole the land, it's going to happen again in another war because it's happened in the past, sadly. A feud. Now, if Secretary of State Blinken asked my advice, I'd say, well, there's a simple answer. Let the Palestinians and the Israelis both become Christians. Then they won't fight over the land because the Palestinian and Jewish Christians that are over there get along with each other. But he'll say, you, do you expect us to present that to Netanyahu and Hamas that they become Christians? No, but that would be the answer. Anyway, the land is part of the fighting. Um, aggressive warfare. Who does the land belong to? And then other ones will say, wait a second. This is the history of the United States. You took the land from the American Indians. Sometimes that was the case, but not always. I saw a documentary recently, and they said, well, when Columbus landed over here, and then later the Pilgrim Fathers, um, there were five million Indians in what's called the United States now. Five million spread out over, they didn't own all the land, so the settlers sometimes, with the army, took it from some Indians, and other ones, they just moved to areas that nobody lived in. But then Indians say, this land is ours, and so forth, so there's still discussions my point is it's not always easy to, de to determine who owns what land, except in Isaiah's day, that land was promised to the descendants of Abraham. Even though they had had a civil war and divided north and south, both the northern and the south would say, it's ours, the Canaanites are gone. And then God said, you're my people and the land is yours as long as you stay my people and worship me. If you don't, I'm going to let Assyria, Babylonians, Greeks, uh, Romans come in and take the land away from you until you turn back to me. You have to know about the theology as well as the history. Okay, that's uh, verses 5 to 10 in some. 11 to 18, God told Isaiah and Judah, don't imitate or fear these aggressors. Yes, they're pagans. They're bloodthirsty. Remember, Assyrians, their capital was Nineveh, and they were, they were not only mean, they were vicious, cruel, sadistic. When they conquered a people, if they didn't make them slaves, they would torture them. They were the ones that invented crucifixion. They said, we don't just kill them, we torture them to death. So, oh, the Jews were scared. Oh, and so God says, no, no, don't be afraid of them. 
come to me. Don't fear them, you fear me. And I can protect you. And notice it says here, uh, hallow the Lord. Got nothing to do with Halloween. Halloween comes from All Saints Day. Hallow means to treat as holy. How does the Lord's Prayer begin? Hallowed be thy name. Let your name be considered holy. You remember just a couple of chapters earlier, Isaiah went to heaven, saw the angels worshiping God and saying, holy, holy, holy. Do you hallow God and his holy name? It's in the Ten Commandments. Don't take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Hallowed be his name because he is holy. So God said, remind them of this, Isaiah. But they wouldn't listen. Next, 19 to 22. Now this, I'm going to say a little bit more about this in detail. Look at 19 to 22. Back in chapter 8. It says, and when they say to you, Seek those that who are mediums and wizards who whisper and mutter. Should not a people seek their God? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it's because there is no light in them. So the pagan nations like the Assyrians, Syrians, Egyptians, and whatever practice the occult, the black arts. And God says, absolutely not. He says that over and over again, such as in Deuteronomy 13. Uh, wizards, casting spells, mediums, calling up the dead. And it says here, they whisper and mutter. We know from some ancient records, just like they do today with seances, the person conducting it starts saying these funny things, kind of like speaking in tongues, and they make little noises like birds. You know, they, they said, this is in contact with the supernatural God makes fun of this with a whispering and muttering sound like silly people that are drunk. But it says, don't go to them. Now, notice that it concentrates on the mediums. What's a medium? Medium is someone that calls up the dead because he says, why do you seek the dead on behalf of the living? There are people today that say, well, call up, you know, your dead mother, your dead uncle Charlie or someone. If you grease the palm with a little bit of silver I think there's some even here in Springfield. Not just palm readers, but people say, we'll have a seance, go into a trance, turn off the lights, maybe light some candles and call back your mother. And um, people miss a, a loved one, so they say, oh, I'll pay anything to see mama again. And so they, what they're doing is engaging in occultism. What does the word occult mean? It means seeking secret knowledge or secret power that's supernatural that you could not find out otherwise. So you go to these people that are evil and say, I want some information or I want power to cast a spell on my enemy or a love potion for a girl I like. And these people say, I've got this power, but it's evil power. Parents, teacher, children have nothing to do with the occult. Ouija boards, horoscopes, the whole thing is is demonic and it's evil. And so God says, don't go to mediums to call up the dead because it's evil. It might be a demon in disguise pretending to be your mother. But you know, there's a Christian way of doing this. I remember hearing some Pentecostal, oh, many, many years ago, saying that 
he went to a meeting with some other Pentecostal preachers and they could call up dead preachers. He says, we even called up Spurgeon. <laughs> I said, Spurgeon? He wouldn't come up from the dead. And like Samuel, he would have condemned you for that. But I think that's pretty obscure, weird. But there's another church that regularly does this. Catholic Church. They say pray to the saints, especially to Mary. Get out your rosary beads. They're contacting the dead. And they don't see that God utterly forbids that in the Bible, like in this verse here. They say, well, that's condemning uh, calling up your Aunt Susan but, and, and calling to someone else. But oh, if we call to Mary and St. Peter and all that, they're dead. Yeah, but they're, those are Christians. That's different. No, God forbids that. So they're guilty of that. And you can tell them I said so. So it says here, instead of doing that, for secret knowledge and secret power... Go to God and his word, to the law and to the testimony. That means the word of God, the law and the prophets. In other words, sola scriptura. We don't need that other stuff. First off, it's evil. But scripture is totally sufficient. It's the yardstick of truth. Because it says here, if they don't speak according to God's word, it's because they're blind. They have no light. They're groping about in stygian darkness. Go to the word of God. It gives true light. The, this is a golden verse I've often quoted. It's like 1 Thessalonians 5. Test all things. What did the Bereans do? They tested even what Paul said. They tested it by the word of God. Dear brethren, don't believe everything you hear and see, even on Christian television or websites or books, or even in this pulpit. Test it all by the word of God. I'm not infallible. I'm not a prophet. Test it by the word of God. And those that don't measure up to it, or spiritually blind, walk away from them, oppose them. That's what those two verses, th th those are verses you may want to underline or put a star in the margin and, and learn in case you need to quote it to someone involved in the occult. Okay, that brings us to chapter 9 now. The first five verses is both a message of warning and a message of blessing. And we find that with the prophets. Saying to Israel, I will bless you if you repent and turn back to me and obey my law and keep the covenant. If not, I'll issue you this warning. So it's a warning of uh, doom and hope. Now I've got to throw this in. And Jeff, you may remember me telling you this before. When I studied in Edinburgh, I went to Bellevue Baptist Church. And it's very interesting. Um, the pastor that started it was named Bob Doom. And across the street was a funeral home run by Mr. Hope. So there's doom and hope. But they were in the wrong profession. One was doom as a preacher, the other, well. But doom and hope, that was the theme of the prophets. You know, a, a blessing if you follow him, there's the, the hope. But if you don't take it, there's doom. Of course, that transfers to the New Testament and the gospel. Believe and you'll be forgiven, you'll go to heaven. If you, and that's the hope. If you don't, you face damnation and doom in everlasting hell. Verse 2 is referred to in Matthew 4, 16. So these prophecies find their ultimate fulfillment in the Lord Jesus. It mentions Galilee, and of course we know that's where Nazareth is, where Jesus grew up, and Capernaum and Bethsaida, these villages Jesus often preached in. Matthew 4, 16 particularly refers to verse 2. Verses 3 and three to 5 is this promise of future, promise of future blessing. Now this could be referring to 
the protection or the deliverance from Assyria, but probably refers to a greater blessing coinciding with what it's going to say in the next couple of verses about this special baby, this Messiah. And just like um, verse 2 is fulfilled in Matthew 4, 16, the life of Jesus. So the promise of future blessing isn't just protection or deliverance, but salvation through this special baby that's not Maharshalahashbaz, but has some other names. So that brings us to verse 9. And we're going to say quite a bit about this tonight. It's a great messianic prophecy fulfilled in Jesus Christ. This is the source of that great oratorio by Handel called the Messiah. And you'll hear that sometime in the next few weeks. So let's look at this. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And God's people said, Amen. Great prophecy of the coming Messiah. That's why I call this the Gospel of Isaiah. It talks about his birth, his death, his ministry, his miracles. So it begins here, a child is born. What child? The child born of a virgin back in chapter 7, verse 14. A child is born, like that birth announcement I mentioned tonight. And that child will be a special child, not Maharshalas, Hashbaz. It says a child is born, a son is given. That's alluded to in the New Testament, like the angels saying to, this night to you is, a Savior is born, who is Christ the Lord. Happy announcement. I bring you good tidings of great joy. A child is born. Jesus was born as a baby. Has it ever occurred to you, he didn't come into the world as a full-grown man, like Adam did. Only one other person came as a full-grown adult. Who was that? Eve. When God created Eve out of the rib, she wasn't a little baby girl. She was created as an adult because they got married. But those are the only two that began as an adult. Jesus began as a little baby and so is everybody else in human history. Why? He humbled himself so that he could go through all the stages of life. Think about that. We think, well, yes, Luke 2 says he was a little boy of 12, went to the temple. Try to picture Jesus as a five-year-old or in the manger, just one day, one night old. What about those nine months he was in the womb of his mother, all alone? Think about that. Humbled himself as an unborn fetus, then as a baby, and he went through the stages of life. A child is born. He's begun. He's, he's going to come. And then it says, in parallel fashion, a son is given. Now, is that alluded to indirectly in the New Testament? John 3.16, God so loved the world, he gave his son. This is what in theology we call an allusion. It alludes to that sort of indirectly. But it's a son. God didn't send an angel, he sent his son. You remember one of the parables that Jesus told about a big farm and the owner was in another city and he said, well, uh, he, said, he sent a servant, go back there and bring me the, uh, the latest proceeds from the sale of the wheat. 
And so the people that were tending the farm beat him up. And so, and then he sent another servant. They beat him up. And, they, and so he said, well, I will send my son. Surely they'll respect him. No, the son comes. And they beat him up and kill him. And they say, now the farm is ours. And Jesus said, what's that man going to do? He's going to send in the army and the police and execute those murderers. They killed my son. And then, interesting, one of the Gospels gives a little interpretation and said, the Pharisees hated him because they knew he told this parable about them. They had mistreated the prophets and they were about to kill the son that was given. God didn't send an angel, he sent his only son. Next it says, the government shall be upon his shoulder. What government? It would include Israel. Is he going to be a new king of, um, of Assyria? No. Remember the wise men? They came. We are looking for him that is born the king of the Jews. This baby would be a king and that he would have an empire. He would have a kingdom. And the government was not going to be limited to Israel. It would be worldwide. Only Jesus Christ is qualified to be the ruler of the whole world. Others have tried. Napoleon, he failed. Hitler failed. Other ones have tried. They've all failed. The Caesars. Only Jesus Christ is qualified. And he will rule over a worldwide kingdom. And he started it, this is skipping down to verse 7, he started it when he came on earth because he kept preaching the kingdom of God is near. It was an invisible kingdom and it's been growing for 2,000 years as people join the kingdom when they get converted. But at his second coming, look it up in Revelation. Right before the second coming, an angel makes the announcement, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. And at the second coming, he defeats all of his enemies, sets up his worldwide kingdom. And as I say in my book, Jesus is the king of the kingdom of God. Micah, that would be one of the hundred proofs that Jesus is God. Did you see that? He is the king of the kingdom of God. If it's the kingdom of God, who's the king? God. Jesus is the king. That's the theme of the Gospel of Matthew. Duh. He's the king of the kingdom of God. He is God. Only God could have a universal kingdom. By the way, when it says upon his shoulder, that's a Near Eastern way of saying he carries the burden of, of authority and rule. Now look at, the, look at the names that are given to him here in this verse. You know that when the angel appeared to Joseph, he said, uh, you give him two names. You give him Yeshua, which means Jesus, Jehovah saves. And then also gives him Emmanuel, which is taken from the gospel of Isaiah. The baby that was born of the virgin called his name Emmanuel. John's gospel gives him another name, the word, the logos, and then some other names and titles. I like that verse in Revelation 19 where it says, on his chest he has the name King of Kings, Lord of Lords. He's also got the name, the word of God, and he has a name that only he knows. And you're going to wonder, well, what is that name? I don't know. Only he knows, and he hadn't told us. That's telling us there are certain things about him that only God knows. And maybe we'll know when we get to heaven. But here, for titles, 
or given to him. First one, wonderful counselor. Now, in some translations, there's a comma between those as if to say there are five titles. Wonderful, number two, counselor, number three, and so forth. But actually, in Hebrew, it's four titles that are couplets or doublets. Notice, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Each one has two words to it. So the first title is one title, wonderful counselor. But what does that mean? Wonderful. Go look that up in the Bible, other places. It means wonderful, James means full of wonder. Have you ever seen something that causes you to wonder and to think about? How do they do that? How does just a little girl memorize all these birth dates of people in the church? How, how, how did she do that? Well, you look at something on the computer and say, how did they do that? It causes wonder and curiosity. Um, we should have that sense of wonder when we think about the birth of Jesus. Um, he did miracles. How did he do that? Well, supernatural power. Something we can't do. It caused people to wonder and to worship. Um, now, the old King James will have a word, awful, which to us is a bad thing, but back then it meant all full, full of awe and wonder. Brethren, we should never lose that sense of awe and holy wonder and holy curiosity about God. In Judges 13, 18, Christ appeared before his birth in a kind of a mysterious way, and, um, and then he disappeared, but the person he appeared to said, what is your name? I think it was Manoah. And Jesus said, why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? And he didn't tell them the specific name to say, you, you really couldn't grasp it all. It's wonderful, full of wonder. Never lose that sense of wonder as you meditate upon Jesus, the God-man, born of a virgin, humbled himself, the wonder of the cross. That was beyond the Jews. They never expected that. Messiah, he's not going to die on a cross, but he did. You know, there are two hymns that include this word. I still remember the one. Anybody remember George Beverly Shea? Remember him singing, Oh, the wonder of it all. He used to sing with Billy Graham's Crusades. And then there's a song you may hear at Christmas time. I wonder as I wander. So he's the wonderful counselor. Counselor means someone that gives counsel. How? Back in eternity, there was the council of peace, the Bible calls it. The Father, the Son, the Spirit. Because they predestined everything. Ephesians 1 says he predestined according to the counsel of his own will. So they took counsel to predestine everything that will happen, including the elect of, election of people to be saved. So that's within the Trinity. I know this is deep, but how about in time? He becomes our counselor. To be precise, he is another counselor. Remember he said that to the apostles. I will send you another counselor, the Holy Spirit. But he's in, implying, I am a counselor, and so is he. 1 John 2, 2 says, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. An advocate is a counselor, or to be precise, Jeff, a barrister. Now, 
That's barrister, not barista. <laughs> barista is a bartender. Barrister in England and in Scotland is a judge, is the attorney that goes to the judge to argue your case jealously for a major crime. A solicitor is like you go to for civil law and contracts, but a barrister stands up for you. That's what an advocate is. That's what a true counselor is. And you've seen the TV shows. Maybe you've been in a court where the judge says, hey, counselor, I'm warning you. So he refers to an attorney as a counselor. Jesus is our advocate, our barrister, our wonderful counselor. He stands up for us at the bar of God's justice. Second title, Mighty God. Now, if there's a verse in the Bible that teaches the full deity of Christ, this has got to be one. This is like number three in my list of 100 proofs of the deity of Christ. He is called Mighty God. That's echoed in the New Testament. Revelation 1, 8, Jesus himself says he is God Almighty. That's the omnipotence of God, the omnipotence of Jesus. This also carries the idea that He's the Savior. He is our hero, our champion. He delivers us. He is the victor. The third title is, look at the verse, Everlasting Father. One misunderstanding of this is saying Jesus is God the Father. There is no Trinity. This is called modalism. Uh, the United Pentecostal Church teaches this. T.D. Jakes believes this. That there's no Trinity, but yet they still believe Jesus is God because they say Jesus is the Father. He is called the Everlasting Father. That's called modalism or oneness. No, the Bible doesn't teach that. Jesus and the Father are both God, but Jesus is not the Father. How do you interpret this? Some Hebrew scholars say it should be translated the Father of Eternity, or He is like a Father to His people. There are different metaphors. Um, we mentioned it this morning. He's the husband to his bride, his people. Uh, in Hebrews 2, he is referred to as a father to the children who are his people because he appears before God the Father and says, Behold, I and the children you have given to me. So in that sense, he's like a father to us, but he's not the first person of the Trinity. Notice, however, the modifying adjective. He is everlasting. Only God is everlasting. There's another proof of his deity. What does it say in Psalm 90, verse 2? From everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. That can only be said of God, and that's Jesus. By the way, this is echoed in another great messianic prophecy. Okay, quick class. Someone tell me the answer. What is the prophecy that tells us not only about his birth, but the very city he would be born in? Do, 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 little Jeopardy music. Come on. What's the one? Micah 5 2. That's it. Give that guy a gold badge. And it says, His goings forth are from eternity. That's the eternal generation of Jesus within the Trinity will be born in Bethlehem. And that's quoted in the New Testament. But it says, His goings are from everlasting. That's Jesus. Okay, the fourth title. Prince of Peace. Think of that. You say, well, I thought he was a king. Well, some interpret this. Well, we're still talking about him as a baby that would grow up to be the king. So a baby that's in the royal line of succession is called a prince, and then 
he becomes the king. That's one interpretation of this. But he's called the one of peace. The angel said, peace on earth. Jesus called the prince of peace. Colossians 1 and Ephesians 2 said he made peace for us at the cross. He gives peace because he said, my peace I give to you. And of course, in Hebrew here, the word is shalom, which means more than the absence of war, it means the presence of health and harmony. Micah 5, 2, in the very context of that other prophecy, it says, this man shall be our peace. Ephesians 2, 14, he himself is our peace. Made peace with God, and it says in uh, Philippians 4, he gives us peace with God, and gives us the peace of God in our hearts. Okay, quickly, verse 7 says his government. That's the kingdom. It'll grow and grow and grow. Matthew 13, Jesus told parables about the growth of the kingdom and said, it's like a little tiny seed that's planted and then it becomes the biggest tree of also big birds nest in it. The kingdom started when Jesus came. The king has come. It started small. And it's been growing ever since. The government, the increase of his government will never end. Just like Revelation, the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of God and of his Christ. He is the king. And it's an invincible spread. It's not, I guess you could say in a spiritual sense, it's aggressive warfare. He's overturning Satan's evil empire and taking captives from them and making him, them his disciples. Notice it says the throne of David, and that's referred to in the New Testament same, in the same way. He's descended from David. God promised that David would have a descendant one day that would be the great king. And that's Jesus, the son of David. Okay, quickly, let's conclude the rest of the chapter. Skip some more stones over it. Verses 8 to 12. Notice the arrogance of the people that heard these prophecies. And that happened over and over again. Stubborn, arrogance, as if to say, we don't need you to rebuild us and we don't need you to protect us from the Assyrians. We can do it again. We can go back to the glory days of Solomon and David. I wonder if they had little red caps that said, make Israel great again. Nobody can make Israel or America great again except God. Not Donald Trump, not Joseph Biden, nobody else, only God, because God made us great and God can bring us down. We should pray for revival for God to make us great in a spiritual sense, not financial or some American empire. Only God can do that. And it mentions again the Syrians and the Palestinians, and almost said Palestinians, the Philistines. That's where the Philistines live. Gaza, who is their big hero? Goliath. And little David killed him with the power of God. Okay, next, 13 to 17. The blunt of what he is saying here is these, ignore the false prophets. They're teaching lies. There's still false prophets today. In churches, writing books, websites, standing in pulpits. They're false prophets, false teachers. The Bible repeatedly warns about them. Old Testament and New Testament, literally from Genesis to Revelation. They teach lies. It says in the book of Jeremiah, they're making up these dreams 
They're saying, thus says the Lord. And God said, I didn't give them that message. Some of them know that they're teaching lies. They're just in it for the money. You see them on television making sorts of promises. Send us $50 a month and I guarantee God will heal you. It's, it's a, they're charlatans. They're, they're thieves. Like the ones Jesus drove out of the temple. They know it. Other ones are simply deceived. They believe Satan's lies. So what this is is a rebuke of the religious hypocrites in Israel then, unfortunately in a lot of churches today. Pretenders, even false prophets. Okay, we conclude with the last paragraph, 18 to 21. Notice it mentions this fire associated with the Assyrians coming in, and then later the Babylonians, and then later after that the Romans. When they defeated, they, they just burnt down so much. Just like especially on the Eastern Front in World War II. Boy, just read about what happened. Wherever the Nazis went, they just started burning things and killing people. Then when the tide turned and they had to run back to Germany, followed by the Russians, the Russians then went into Poland and Germany and burnt everything. That's unfortunately what happens in warfare. But the Assyrians would come in and they would burn down Samaria and uh, northern Israel, things like that. And Babylonians later when they went to the south, so there's the threat of fire, and it's not an idle threat, but it's hinting at a greater hell fire. Because this principle applies to all human history. God calls upon mankind, repent, I've given you so many blessings, I've sent my son, and you killed him. There's the warning, the threat. But there's still the promise of blessing if you repent and believe. But God threatens the fire of his wrath on all those that die unrepentant, just like the northern Israelites, you know the rest of the story. They didn't repent. The Assyrians came in and mass murder. It was terrible. Look at verse 19. The people are fuel for the fire. They'd be burnt at the stake. They'd be, oh, they'd be tortured by the Assyrians. Jonathan Edwards has a sermon on that phrase saying, lost pagans unbelievers at the judgment day, they'll serve only one purpose for their very existence. They'll be fuel for the fires of hell. They're not worth anything else. It's just like throwing logs on a fire and that will glorify God. Notice the imagery of hell. Verse 19 says, nobody's going to spare even their relatives, their spouses, their parents, their children. It's like in a siege. It's every man for himself. Just total chaos. Notice the recurring phrase three times. For all this, God's anger is still hanging over them. God had delivered Israel over and over again. Go back to the judges and then other times. They cried out, God delivered them. They went right back to their evil ways. And they didn't even bother thanking God for delivering them from the evil nations like the Philistines and these other ones. And God said, for all of that... I'm still angry with them because they've never really truly repented. How does that apply to world, the world ever since? Today. The sword of God's anger still hangs over the entire world and everybody in it. Even though God has done much blessing, people throw it back in his faith, face and God says, for all of this, his anger is still not satisfied. What's the only answer? Jesus Christ. So like Isaiah, we should warn people 
and tell them the hope of the gospel. Next week, Lord willing, we'll do chapters 10, I think all the way to chapter 12. Let's pray. Father, you inspired Isaiah to write this down so that we can learn from it. Thank you for Isaiah and his courage. And help us, Father, to be like him in proclaiming that you are holy, holy, holy. In Jesus' name, amen.